And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be. And welcome to another live edition of The Other Side of Midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn where, well, anything can happen, and sometimes it does, like it did a couple of minutes ago. Sorry about that little glitch. Um, As we used to say, we can take that out in post for all you Club 19.5 members. Um, We're going to do a couple very interesting things tonight. For one thing, the subject of the evening is more ancient archaeology. This window into our hidden past, our deliberately suppressed past, our amnesic past, our uh, forgotten year, whatever term you want to use. We're going to be talking with... uh, Uh, Dennis Stone this morning for most of the three hours with an extraordinary discussion and set of revelations on really, literally, an American Stonehenge that I bet you never knew existed. But before we get to that, um, I want to go to uh, Robert Morningstar because we have a new... um, we 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 have an interesting update, okay? Robert, are you there? Yes, I am. Ah, so why don't you continue the saga of last week, which a lot of people wrote to me and said they really enjoyed. We were discussing this bird film, this U.S. official Navy film that was shot on Operation High Jump in from '46 to late '46 to about February, March '47. They brought all the film back to the States. They turned it over to MGM. MGM worked on it for about a year. And then in December, December 2nd of 1948, they released to about 80 theaters around the country, including, I found, three or four in New York, uh, this gorgeous Technicolor release print, which was shown to general audiences and which garnered for the director, Oliver Dull. That's his real name. Oliver Dull, um, an Academy Award for Best Documentary of 1948. Then after the show, you and I discussed, well, where could we find a copy, an original pristine Technicolor copy over all these years of The Silent Land? And take it from there. Okay, so on Monday after the show, Richard uh, called me to congratulate us on a good show, which I think actually I consider it the best show we've done together. And so he prodded me, I must say I was a little <laughs> rushed, but he prodded me insistently that I should go to um, the New York Public Library, which is the one of the greatest libraries on this planet, because he was sure it had to be there. They had to have a copy. So I um, picked up the phone. I worked my way through the the menu to Living People (laughs) and then got to the archivist for films. And when I asked about the the secret land, he he could find a reference to it. He could tell me that it was narrated by Van Heflin, but also by Robert Taylor and Robert Montgomery. Mm -hmm. So anyway, he said, we don't have a copy. I said, what? Are you sure? He says, I'm positive. And let me look around to see where it might be found. And after a thorough archivist search, he could find only two copies on the planet, one here in North America and the other one in Australia. Good grief. Yes, but here, here's the kicker. I was now intrigued. You know why? Dang, you know, such a famous film, and you'd think that it'd be, you know, enshrined in many... Well, for those who didn't hear last week's show, this was the archive, the official U.S. Navy archive film record released to the general public in 48, in December, of the largest expeditionary force then, before, or since to ever go to the Antarctic. 13 ships, 23 aircraft, 4,700 men, you know, commanded by two rear admirals, okayed grudgingly by the President of the United States, suddenly after the war, put together literally in weeks, like there was a real rush, 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 and the official record has been reduced to two copies on in, in two hemispheres, a, a half a planet apart. That's astonishing. Exactly. 
So I called Richard with that news, and he said, you have to get to the people that produce the one that we're using. It says at the beginning that if you want a copy, you can buy it from – can we mention the company? Yeah, sure. Or sh- should we? Yeah. Okay, Periscope. Periscope. Uh, Periscope Film. They're, they're military so, archivists of everything, Marine, Navy, Army, Air Force, whatever. Right. So Richard uh, gives me the uh, the link, uh, the URL. So I track down contacts and I get to their archivist and I said, hey, listen, you know, uh, we're list- um, I'm interested in uh, purchasing a, a good high quality definition c- copy of The Secret Land. The Chronicle of Operation High Jump. Well, let, let me interrupt because they advertised on their site that they had a high definition transfer. Right. So I'm going for that. He says, oh, well, we don't do, we're not making any DVDs anymore. And I'm looking at the website and there are several uh, items there that have uh, DVDs still. And I said, well, I don't even see the secret land here on your menu. And he says, yes, uh, that's a special item. So I said, well, um, I'm really interested in uh, purchasing a, a a high quality copy of it, the best you can get. And he says, well, um, I think it best if you work on the one that's on YouTube. Uh, and I said, well, I've seen that and it smudges a lot. And I really like, uh, uh, high quality, high definition. He says, well, we have that. We have a 4k version. I said, Oh, well, how can I get to see that? He says, what well, it'll cost you. And I said, how much? And he says, $20 per second. Weather. Weather. $20 yeah. per, per second. second. Yes. Per second. And I said, Whoa, Come on, man. And I was thinking, now, Richard, you and I thought we had mentioned like the the film is half an hour long. It's actually an hour long. So I said, hey, well, no, no, no. It's it's seventy one minutes according to the yes. archives I looked at. Different yeah. versions: sixty nine minutes, seventy one minutes, and uh, one hour versions. But anyway, that be that as it may, I was thinking in terms of like just getting that half hour that uh, you're interested, I'm interested in. Uh, or the complete film. And he says twenty dollars per second. I said, "Are you kidding me? That's." Hey, I said, "That's not only exorbitant; it's obstructive." And then he said, "And I said, well, listen. Um, I thought maybe I can buy a piece of it." And I said, "Because Richard, you want you want us. I've seen this section that you want, and it's only about." Five seconds at the most. It spans, scans the mountain and and that architecture that uh, you feel is there. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know, well maybe I can buy that. So I said, hey, listen, you know, um, twenty dollars a second. Uh, I'd uh, I'd be interested in buying about five seconds of film. That'd be a hundred bucks, right? And uh, he says, yes, but you'd have to go for our minimum, which is two hundred and fifty dollars. And I said. $250, eh? That's what, about 12 and a half seconds? He says, yeah. $20 a second, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I said, okay, thanks a lot. I'll think about it. And then I went back to Richard, and I think I heard the joy hit the, hit the desk. <laughs> well, this is what we would call censorship by price. They're yeah, not outright a- saying, oh, you can't have it, but they make mm-hmm. it so extraordinarily exorbitant that nobody in their right mind without seeing the quality would, would, would pay a penny at those rates. Exactly. Exactly. And there are a lot of other instances when dealing with the government bureaus, uh, where they have asked for, you know, you write under freedom of information that for missing people in national parks. And I say, no, we don't keep any records, but it'll cost you $1.3 million to get, it. <laughs> <laughs> get what we have. And that's serious. That's serious. Well, you, about- you actually priced out what, if we were stupid enough to buy the whole film at that rate, what it would cost. Well, it would cost us seventy-two thousand uh, dollars for the sixty-minute version. Good grief! Can you imagine that? That's, that's insane. Again, that's why I said you know, I couldn't resist. I said, "Whoa, that's absorbent, exorbitant, but it's also obstructive." See, you should have asked when did you guys put this policy in place? Did it happen to be after January twelfth? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Well. It's another call altogether, mm. but it's a, it really is a mystery. So I, I started searching around for a higher quality of 
videos of it because at this moment because it kind of dampens my hope that we can ever get our hands on a real print. If you know what I mean. Yeah. A real yeah. Print. So, well, I, I I've taken it on and I've uh, decided to do a documentary and it's going to be called the restoration of the secret land. And, um, I'm going to insert uh, these newly discovered UFO photos and the fountain of light and anything else I can uh, dig up during the next, uh, well, the architecture we found. Yes. And then you found a whole, there's that, that, you know, castle on Mount Murphy, Mm -hmm. that whole area is arcology's open, covered by snow. You can see girders, you can see geometry, you can see, you know, hanging chads. I'm kidding with the last part. Well, I'd like to address one of your uh, followers who put a comment there that he saw uh, something like a face and a profile in it. I wanted to say to him, uh, I wonder if you've ever read The Great Stone Face by Nathaniel Hawthorne, because uh, that's... uh, that's the classic. If anybody's listening and is interested, there's a Nathaniel Hawthorne. Uh, that was that was stone. memorializing the extraordinary profile at a place called Franconia Notch in New Hampshire. New Hampshire. That my family oh. and I used to go and drive up to, and we would sit in that parking lot, and we would just look at it. You know, afternoons, mornings, different sunlight. I was incredibly right. you, know, well, you know Richard this uh, mentioning New Hampshire is a perfect segue for your show because I do believe that America's Stonehenge <laughs> is in that neck of the woods. Funny you should mention that I was going to say this is this is a production by mm. Okay, you got two radio guys trying to outdo each other as producers. Yes, this is the perfect segue. So Robert, thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. Obviously thank keep us informed. Time. You are sure. putting out a call for collectors. Anywhere yes, in the I world. I got, a, I got a good quality uh, copy, and I'm working on it. And with my movie um, production software, uh, I'm enhancing it, improving the quality and the balance, all of that. So we'll we'll see something, you know, for the anniversary. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> thank, all right. Thank Have you. Have a good night, folks, and enjoy the show. And I'll talk to you soon, Richard. And good night, Cynthia and Keith and the whole crew. Bye-bye. Thanks, Robert. Okay, with that as the segue, my guest this morning, Dennis Stone, is the president of America's Stonehenge. He graduated from Daniel Webster College in 1977, almost gave you 100 years there, Dennis, with a degree in aviation management and was a full-time commercial pilot for over 35 years before his, quote, retirement. Us guys never retire. In 2016. America's Stonehenge was opened to the public in 1958 by Dennis's father, Robert Stone. Dennis has been involved with America's Stonehenge for most of his life and has always had a fascination with archaeology and archaeoastronomy. Since retiring, Dennis has found many serpentine walls and spirit windows throughout the site, among the other new discoveries. He has taken numerous courses and traveled extensively to ancient sites both in the U.S., and internationally. And his family includes his wife, Pat, his son, Kelsey, and his daughter-in-law, Catherine. His hobbies include traveling, obviously, boating, and classic cars. So, Captain Stone, should I should I refer to you as Captain all evening? Oh, good evening, Richard. Thank you for having me on. Captain's good. <laughs> <laughs> Super. We can never have too many captains. Um. As long as Robert, you know, kind of tipped our hand there, um, how far away is America's Stonehenge from what used to be the Great Stone Face in New Hampshire? Because many years ago, it collapsed, uh, you know, succumbed to glaciers and, you know, uh, ice wedging and all that. And it, they, they tried to literally cable it together for many years, and then finally uh, it just gave up the ghost. So how far are you away from there? Yeah, we're actually um, on just off the same highway, Route 93, about two hours south of there. So it's probably about 100 miles. And oh, my. It, yeah, it's the old man of the mountain. I think it fell down in 2003. You know? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, we, we kind of miss it. <laughs> yeah, well, as I used to say, we used to drive up from New England. My dad loved to take us on road trips, and we'd go and we would look at it, various lighting, and it was it was striking, the old, the old man of the mountain. That's what they called it. Yep. 
So it's, uh, still the, it's, the, it's still the uh, state symbol too, you know, it's on uh, all the uh, highway equipment yeah. and the state police cars and everything. So yeah, we're, it's kind of a legacy, I guess. Well, let me dive into your background because um, obviously I need to ask you the first question, which is how did your dad, Robert, wind up acquiring a landmark that may really open up a doorway to a whole hidden aspect of American archaeology? How were you so lucky? Right. Yeah, my dad uh, was actually just out of the Coast Guard, where he spent some time up in uh, Labrador, Newfoundland, right, where the Vikings uh, eventually were found to have landed back about a thousand years ago. His interest was always history in the past, you know, and he had been up there in the early 1950s. Um, I think that site, Lonzo Meadow in Canada, was found about 1960, or at least they recognized it. So he was there just a little too early for that. But he um, <clears throat> was at Western Electric, uh, AT&T, as a Bell La- and a Bell Labs as an engineer. And he had been there about two years, I guess, right after the Coast Guard. And on a Friday night, uh, back in 1955, in the summer, he was listening to a radio show, just like we're talking right now, at one of the biggest stations out of New England, uh, and some, located in Boston. And uh, that evening, they were talking all about these strange stone ruins uh, in North Salem, New Hampshire. And he lived in the next town over, about eight miles, and he had never heard of this place. So the subject really fascinated him, kind of surprised him, you know, especially we had never heard about the place before. Um, and the name of the show was uh, Yankee Yarns, and the uh, talk show host was Alton Hall Blackington. Was that and, on WBZ? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 10, 10, you got it. Yeah, 1030 on your dial, AM. Clear and, channel, uh, 50,000 watts. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and he used to listen to that up in Labrador, as a matter of fact, to stay in touch with home. So, uh, it, you know, he listened to it up there and we came home, he listened to it. And the show really fascinated him that evening. And I believe they played it later in the year. Again, he heard it. But uh, right after that, he was at a barber shop in the town of Derry, New Hampshire, where we grew up and he grew up. And um, in a, on a table while waiting to have his hair done, there was a magazine called the New Hampshire Profile Magazine. And he's sitting there waiting. He opened it up and the feature story was all about the same place he had heard on the radio just a couple of nights before, which really, you know, again, kind of shocked them. And uh, actually had been sitting on the Bobby shop for three years. It was a 1952 uh, New Hampshire Profiles magazine. So luckily nobody threw it away for three years. And he asked if he could uh, take it home with him. And the barber asked how old it was. And he said, oh, sure. Yeah, you can take that home. That weekend, they were at my aunt and uncle's and about 10 people playing cards, having some beer and stuff. And my dad passed the magazine around to everybody to look at see if anybody knew about this place because it's only down the road a few miles and nobody knew about it until it got to my aunt and uncle and they looked at it and they and uh, kind of a surprised look on their face and said yeah we used to go down there on our bicycles when they were dating back in the mid-1930s and they went up there and picnicked and so next question to my dad was can you find the place so on Sunday the next morning the four of them my dad, mom, and aunt and uncle, they went down and they drove all over the place trying to find this place because it was not open to the public. It was all woods. It was on a hill and it wasn't known at all, you know. So they finally found a road that looked familiar to my aunt and uncle. And so they walked up the road, basically trespassing, and they got up to the So, uh, so the hang site. on, hang on. So, so this, <laughs> this was privately owned even at that time? Yeah, it was. Absolutely. Actually, it's always been in private hands, going back to the earliest records, going back to the 1600s, actually. And we even have a record of two Native Americans that sold the property in this area for a couple of shillings. We actually have the price they paid for the land. Oh, my God. And it goes back to, yeah, 1667, I think it was. Wow. So we go quite a ways back. And it became part of Haverhill, Massachusetts, before this became New Hampshire. And uh, so it was called the Haverhill Peak, and it was controlled by the Haverhill proprietors. So we have a long kind of a timeline of land use and ownership, you know, going back, uh, gosh, almost uh, 350 years. Um, so it's private property. So, so it's, so it's in back. really southern, southern, southern New Hampshire. I'm trying to think back to my yeah, childhood. It, <clears throat> Just across the state line from Haverhill, Massachusetts, right? right. That's right. Yeah. And we were part of Haverhill. And yeah, it's right on the border of New uh, Massachusetts. We're located 40 miles from Boston, right up Route 93, and the ocean's only uh, 20 miles away. Hmm. One of the largest rivers in New England, not the biggest. It's called the Merrimack River. You might remember that crossing over it when oh, you're going up to the mountains. Yeah. Well, the thing that and catches that, my attention <clears throat> is there is a major radio <clears throat> observatory in Haverhill, Massachusetts. And recently, <clears throat> I think it's owned by Harvard, I think, 
It was converted to SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and they've oh, been scanning yep. scanning the skies both with yep. radio as well as I think uh, the principal investigator installed laser detection equipment, an optical observatory wow. <clears> to see if any stars are shooting, you know, lasers at us with messages. So <laughs> it's it's yep. I mean talk about an elegant connection. It's just down yeah. the street. Wow. <clears throat> Yeah, I think that's in Harvard, Mass., which is pretty close to us, too. I used to see that from the air flying into Logan and Boston Airport. Uh, I used to look down and see all the antennas there, particularly in the 80s and 90s when I was flying into Boston more. Uh, we'd see the uh, the antennas, and they're pretty uh, pretty impressive looking. Mm. Um, and that's kind of out in the woods, too. So I used to belong to the Planetary Society back huh. in the 80s and 90s. I haven't done that for a while, but I really enjoyed that, that whole thing. <clears throat> Because Alan Shepard grew right up, you know, up the street from us, about a mile away. He had the summer camp, and oh, uh, he wow. and all the kids from the lakes used to play up on our property, you know. So, uh, kind of a space connection there too. <laughs> so your dad makes this foray onto <clears throat> private land. You wind up going up a dirt road or something. You're trespassing. And yep. what did he see? <laughs> yeah, what he saw was something just totally blew him away. You know, he had to climb under a chain link fence, which is still up there. The main, what we call the main site is about one acre, and it's surrounded by over 100 acres of stone walls and other interesting features that we'll be talking about. But the fence was put up in 1937 by the first, um, he was kind of an antiquarian, people call him an archaeologist, and he wanted to protect the site. So he put this uh, eight-foot chain fence with barbed wire on top, and it's still there today, 80 years, over 80 years later, and it's in great shape. So my dad had to climb under it because it was locked. And there was a hole under the fence. I guess kids probably got under. He found it, went into the site. The other three stayed outside for quite a while, waiting for him to come back out, wondering what he's doing in there. <laughs> and when he finally, <laughs> when he finally came back out, he was just, uh, just totally, you know, surprised and amazed about what he had seen. And uh, he said something to my mom about, you know, this is just an amazing place. Somebody had loved to own it maybe do research, maybe open it to the public as a museum. And my mom said something to the effect, like you got rocks in your head, but <laughs> so that's, so that's, you know, so that's his first experience with a site. Now, what year, um, what we, year was this? <clears throat> yeah, that was uh, 1955. I think it was summertime. Oh my. And so, you know, it was, uh, I was uh, about a year old, I guess at the time. And, I, I didn't go down on, on first visit. I stayed with the grandparents, you know. Um, so my dad, you know, eventually met the landowner who was also a researcher. His name was Malcolm Pearson. And he had a – actually, his family owned an interesting stone structure in Upton, Massachusetts, about uh, 60 miles south of our site. His father and mom had bought the place in the 1920s, and this chamber is amazing. It looks like what they call a passage grave, a megalithic chamber in Europe. It looks mm. like an igloo shape with a long tunnel. Um, <clears throat> and uh, when they bought the place, Malcolm was about 16 years old, and they said, young man, there's a cave out back of this house. So we went out and explored it, and it was really a man-made tr uh, structure, not a natural cave. And it, he couldn't, you know, couldn't believe what he saw. You know, for a kid, that was amazing. But it whet his interest, and it stayed with him till uh, 2000, I think, 11, when he died at the age of 99 years old. He was still involved with this all oh those years my. because of that. <clears throat> and that chamber is now open as a park for the town of Upton, Massachusetts, so it's been preserved. Now, is that, is, that, is that like the passage <clears throat> graves in, in Britain built above ground, or is it below ground? <clears throat> yeah, it's kind of built a, kind of uh, mostly above ground. It does have earth on top of it, but it does stick out of the ground, you know. Um, it's got a really long tunnel, and then it's all corbelled, kind of beehive-shaped in the inside. Um, and research in the last couple decades indicates that the entrance is aligned with the uh, uh, constellation of Pleiades, the Seven oh, Sisters, you know. Wow. And it's kind of interesting, yeah. And it's also aligned with, uh, I'm trying to remember what quarter day, you know, the spring, I forget what it is now, but the Pleiades, I remember that. And that's interesting because they're kind of bookmarks in the growing season. If you plant your seed too early, you know, before the Pleiades, you can lose it to frost. And if you harvest too late in the fall, when you see the Pleiades in the same position, you uh, maybe your crops will freeze. So it's kind of bookmarks in the gro growing season, mm. I guess. So, but astronomically aligned, you know, with the, with the heavens. And our site is too. So when Milk and um, his family owned that, and you know, word get out, I guess, um, about this chamber. Uh, there was some newspaper, uh, newspaper stories about it. And this is in the 1920s going into the 1930s. 
And eventually a gentleman from Hartford, Connecticut, William Goodwin, uh, became aware of this. And he was a retired insurance millionaire. His first cousin was J.P. Morgan, you know, so they're a very prominent family in Hartford. And Goodwin had actually lived all over the country for a while, about 15 years. He spent time in Ohio as a special agent for Aetna uh, Insurance. And he would go around and map some of the 10,000 mounds that are located in Ohio alone. He would do that for the highway department. So his interest goes way back, you know, uh, back into the 30s or even into the 20s, you know, when he was out there. So he became aware of America's, uh, what we call America's Stonehenge today through uh, another gentleman from the West Coast, believe it or not, out in um, Washington State had heard about it out there. And Goodwin had spent a little time in Washington. They became familiar. And he told them about the site in New Hampshire, you know, or I'm sorry, about the Upton Chamber in Mass. And then... um, and then uh, eventually uh, Malcolm Pearson told them about the North Salem site called the Paddy's Caves, as it was known back then. <clears throat> so Goodman got involved with the site, put the chain link fence up, and began researching the site. So that's a fence my dad had to climb under. And um, eventually with Malcolm, he actually worked out an agreement to open the business in 1958. So it took about uh, three years to get everything together to open it up as a museum. And it opened on the summer solstice in 1958. So, you know, we're going to be celebrating a 67, uh, 62nd year open to the public next next summer. <clears throat> wow. <clears throat> now, when he first saw it, it was totally undeveloped. It must have been incredibly overgrown, I imagine. <clears throat> Actually, when Goodwin saw it, and fortunately, Malcolm Pearson was a professional photographer for for a company, and that was great because he uh, had all the cameras. He took photographs left and right, and he took photographs before Goodwin actually disturbed the site. So when Goodwin came in, he put up the fence, and he hired a crew to start cleaning away some of the brush, some of the debris, and then they mapped the site, and he got a guy from um, MIT, a gentleman that was an engineer, and his name is Roscoe Whitney, and he actually went up and he mapped the site. He had a plane table. He did uh, profile, plan views, and cross-sections of the site very, very carefully. So he got the site before a lot of the disturbance was done because Goodwin ended up restoring some of the chambers later on. And the f- photographs even show what the site looked like before the restoration project. But you're right. You really – in the earliest photographs, you can, you can see the chambers, but they're all covered with weeds and dirt and debris. Uh, kind of hard to make out until the cleaning process began. And that took a couple of years to really clean the place up. And Goodwin, basically, he would take a rock if it had fallen off a structure about three feet away, he'd have this crew put it back on the chamber. That was his methodology. He thought the stone's probably blown, you know, on the chamber. Right. Um, <clears throat> but the methodology wasn't what it is today. You know, today it's very, very carefully done with toothbrushes and trials, and they use meter squares and everything, and they divide the meter squares into quadrants, and then they record everything with video and cameras. Uh, basically, Goodwin did dig and they sifted, but they didn't always record what some of the artifacts came out of the ground, unfortunately. Okay. And, uh, uh, Dennis, so much, yeah. if you can hold it there, we're at the bottom of the hour. Yep. My guest this morning is Captain Dennis Stone. And we're going to, I want to delve into a little bit in his uh, aviation background because I'm always intrigued with aviation. He is current owner of America's Stonehenge and has been reciting the history of how his father discovered the site and ultimately wound up owning it. Very intriguing, and it's going to get a lot more so, so don't go away. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. about hope for some people tonight that we need to keep in our thoughts and prayers and hope for a better world that we can actually help them achieve. I'm talking, of course, about the people in the Bahamas. Um, if you go to the other side of midnight.com, uh, that's our homepage, and click on that banner which says at the top, Save Lives, Pure Water for the Bahamas. We have been introduced to a technology. It's a filtering technology in, uh, uh, in a certain kind of non-allergenic plastic form Um, you buy one of these bottles with a filter it will replace something like 500 ordinary bottles of 
of uh, mineral water, whatever, the kind that they've been shipping to these disaster sites, you know, on pallets and letting sit outside in the sun. And obviously they're not in non-allergenic pl plastic. So the water is ruined and thousands of tons of water that was supposed to reach the victims of Hurricane Marie sat there and, and rotted in the sun. The same thing's been happening in the Bahamas. If tonight in this 12 days of Christmas, you want to do something to, to, to inject meaningful change into a whole group of people's lives, 60 to 100,000 people on those two northern Bahama Islands tonight. Just just go to that site, click on that banner, and then scroll down below the Yes, I Want to Help button, and there's a video that was shot right after the um, uh, Dorian disaster. I saw a video a couple days ago. Nothing has changed. It is like living in an apocalypse. It is like living in you know, the land of the Lord of the Flies. It's living in conditions that you tonight, listening to my voice, cannot imagine you sustaining 24 hours, 36 hours, two months, five months, you know, a year, five years. It's, it's impossible. They've, they've been trying to bring water in from desalinization. I think the U.S. Navy has brought a couple of ships and anchored them you know, in the northern ports there, and they desalinize seawater to provide water for the inhabitants on the islands, but it's costing $7 per gallon to produce one gallon of fresh water from the surrounding seawater. This technology, which we are privy to, which you can buy by clicking on that button, as many of these bottles of water, life-saving water, and send to the Bahamas as you can afford tonight, and yes, it's tax deductible because it's a nonprofit association that we're in league with, which is doing this. There is no quicker, more effective way in this season to transform someone's life than to give them the gift of life, which is pure 99.99% pure water. And the bottle and the system is recyclable. And all you do is change the filter after the equivalent of about 500 ordinary plastic water bottles and the bottles that they're in, the actual water bottles that you're sending, they will last essentially forever. And they will reach how many people? A thousand, five thousand, ten thousand. So do whatever you can, open your heart and make a difference in someone's life tonight. And welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. My guest this morning is Captain Dennis Stone. Uh, Dennis, let me delve into your aviation background because I noticed in terms of your hobbies, you did not list flying, and I'm kind of intrigued. Why not? Well, I uh, did it for 42 years. <laughs> <laughs> I do miss it a little bit, but it, it's kind of expensive. My son actually is taking lessons right now. He's getting his uh, license, and I think we might go up with him on Monday for a nighttime flight with them. So uh, it continues in the family, but yeah, I miss it a little bit, but I got about 30,000 hours over the 42 years um, and 35 with the airlines. So uh, at the end of it, I was like, I don't want to see an airport for a while. <laughs> <laughs> what, what kind of aircraft did now, you yeah. fly? Uh, everything from, um, let's see, uh, from Piper Cubs on skis for fun, all the way up to uh, the 727. And mm. I was flying uh, that out of Louisville, Kentucky for a number of years at night on the UPS system. And then in, uh, with American, I flew their, uh, their regional jets for 20, well, I was there 27 years almost. So, and I had a hard time getting in the airlines because initially I was rejected because I have a color deficiency. So uh, back in the eighties, uh, a lot of the airlines would take anybody with what they call a waiver of demonstrated ability. I had to prove I could see all the aviation colors. So I got a certificate for that, <clears throat> but the major airlines were like rejecting waivers, you know, and I interviewed with American and United, all the airlines, I kept getting turned down, but I kept plugging ahead and eventually ended up with American uh, uh, 20 years ago. They bought out my company, so it worked out pretty good in the end. <laughs> hmm. Well, I, you know, I, I love flying. I've actually been behind the wheel 
or stick, whatever you want to call it, you know, a few times. Both, and, yeah. <laughs> the yoke, yes, yolk. yes, yes, yolk. yes. <laughs> yeah, well, these were yep. smaller. Although I did get to briefly sit in the right-hand seat of a Boeing 707 uh, oh. during, yeah. uh, which was a military version, was KC-135, when I was yeah. with CBS <laughs> with Walter Cronkite, and I designed wow. I designed an entire eclipse expedition in the air. We borrowed wow. this KC-135. The CBS labs in Stanford, at my direction, built a telescope, a horizontal telescope back in the cabin. This was used for missile tracking, and it had these huge quartz, optically flat quartz windows on both sides for, hmm. for missile cameras and all that. So we borrowed this. Um, we flew it. And, and caught the eclipse track somewhere. It, it, the 1970 eclipse went all the way up the East Coast from from uh, Central America. <clears throat> so we caught it somewhere, I think, over over Georgia, and we raced wow. it at 600 plus miles an hour. Of course, the shadow was moving <laughs> at you know 2,000 or something. Yeah. But we able <laughs> we were able to draw out the eclipse, and I was the guy. They said, "Well, it's your idea." You guide the joystick for the mirror because the, the optics had to come in the window, make a right-hand yep. turn with a flat mirror into the telescope. And it was the first live broadcast from 40,000 feet, I think we were up, uh, of, mm. a, of an eclipse over, over uh, National Television Network, CBS. Uh, and the engineers that I worked with were incredible. They created technological miracles somewhere uh, there's a copy of that video, and I'm trying to, you know, look into the archive, see if I can get a copy wow. for myself. But that was my awesome. experience, and then I was able to briefly, as I said, sit in the right-hand mm -hmm. seat after everything was over and actually fly a 707. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's really nice. <laughs> that's pretty amazing what you did, too, and that was almost uh, 50 years ago. So. Oh, you yeah. make me sound so old. <laughs> I know. Uh, I make my sound, myself sound old, too, you know, when I think back to things we were doing back then, you know. But uh, I think that's a Carly Simon sang the song about that total eclipse. Yes, yes, that Carly song. Simon. That's the yeah. song. That's the eclipse. That's, yes. <laughs> that's famous. And you're part of that. With, so with hidden messages wow. to her to her boyfriend <laughs> in that, uh, you know, you, yeah. you, you may think this song yeah. is about you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and everybody was wondering who it was, I guess. I yeah. think they figured it out, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, that's uh, really cool. Then, oh, it was, it was an incredible experience. Yeah. I'd like to do yeah. it again with and modern it, technology because one yeah. of the things that I tried yeah. to do, I had them cut a hole in the occulting glass that we put over the focal plane that was what they called mm -hmm. a radial gradient filter. I don't know whether you've ever seen a total solar eclipse, but it's pretty bright near the edge of the moon, and then it fades out rapidly, like it gets a million yeah. times dimmer when you get like three or so radio out, radii out. So we didn't have any electronics that could do this in those days, so I had a specially designed wow. radial gradient filter design from a commercial supplier, I think in New Jersey, and we put that at the focal plane of the telescope so... When I pointed the mirror at the at the moon, what we were supposed to do is to see where the moon was. It was a, uh, there was a hole cut in the mirror, so you could see the Earth shine on the moon wow. simultaneous oh, with the wow. eclipse. And Jeez, that's amazing. Well, yeah. we I don't know whether we got it because it was very very dim. The optics and the electronics, you know, it wasn't digital. It was all analog and the yeah. engineer and our engineering department kept tearing his hair. He says, Hoagland, you're asking me to do the impossible. I can't do this. And then he found this ultra, ultra, ultra sensitive camera that we calculated would be able to see it because Earthshine on the moon is 80 times brighter than moonlight, full moonlight on the Earth. So wow. we looked at all those numbers. And now, of course, digitally, you see amateurs doing it all over the world with these stunning views of the eclipse with the corona behind the moon, but you're seeing the moon by Earthlight, and it's trivial digitally now. This was the first attempt I think anybody had ever made to try to photograph wow. the two simultaneously, oh, and during a national televised event from 40,000 feet wow. from a borrowed Air Force KC-135. <laughs> 
Wow, that's amazing. I'll have to think back if I remember seeing that. I must have, you know, because my dad was into that. We were all into that, you know. You know, so, I, I really haven't searched that, yeah. on Google. I, I probably should go to take a look in my copious spare time. Anyway, sorry for the digression, but I love no, flying. No, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I always enjoyed it. My uncle flew in World War II, and he's one of our investigators at our museum, too, and he helps out one of our research groups. But he flew in World War II, B-17s, and 29s oh, after the war, wow. and he got shot down in Belgium. And every now and then on, um, I think it's uh, one of the news uh, on the website comes up about the mystery flight of this. It went into the um, Stars and Stripes back in 1940-something, and it was about his aircraft that they all bailed out of, and the plane B-17 continued, and it landed in the field all by itself, and, you know, with the engine still running and the ground crews looking at it going, where the heck's the crew? And eventually they got on board and everybody was off the plane. And the strange thing is the plane flew itself back to the field and landed in the field with nobody on board. Um, and he also had, when he got bailed out, the, it was in Belgium. And the uh, farmers came up and they thought that they were Germans. And they almost pitchforked mm-hmm. them after they could, you know, say, hey, we are Americans. So, yeah, my uncle, he was a friend of Alan Shepard, too, but... He was really into the, um, you know, this ancient site, and he lived in California until about 19. After the war, he lived out there at Point Magoo working on rocket sled and uh, VOR navigation stuff, which we're still using but phasing out for GPS now. But he was always interested in our site, too, you know, and he really got into the astronomy back in the early 70s. Um, and uh, he was really instrumental in getting all the astronomy um, that we began in 67. He kind of joined it a little bit after that. And uh, he actually worked at the place for a while when he got laid off uh, from um, Raytheon uh, and also Sanders Lockheed, you know, government contracts. So he ended up working for my dad at the museum uh, back in the early 70s for a couple of years. Well, Route 128 used to be called Electronics Row and all those companies were up and down. I used to drive back and forth from Springfield on the Mass Turnpike and visit (laughs) friends and colleagues uh, at EG&G and Raytheon. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so Mm -hmm. I, I know the neighborhood well. Oh, yeah. Okay, back to, America, yeah, yeah. back to America's Stonehenge. Sure. If you want to see some photographs of this extraordinarily intriguing site, you go to the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight's banner for Dennis Stone for Saturday, January 12th, uh, 2020. 2020 already. Amazing. <laughs> second decade, second decade of the 21st century. Um, click on that banner. That will take you to tonight's uh, guest page. Um, on, at the very top, click on the fast links to Dennis's items in Radio with Pictures. And number one says, America's Stonehenge Abandoned. Is this kind of like what it looked like when your dad saw it? Yeah, uh, that picture is of actually one of the quarried stones. Uh, these people that built the site actually quarried very, very large pieces of bedrock. And the bedrock is granite. It's in layers or it's foliated, as geologists call it. And these ancient people were able to separate the bedrock, and then they would prop it off the bedrock. And if you look at the picture, you'll see a little rock at the front of it underneath the uh, front of the stone. Mm -hmm. And we have about 33 of these we've located since 1982. And actually, in the last few years since I retired, we found about 10 more. And some of these weigh several tons. You know, it can be like 12 feet by 12 feet by a foot thick. And and that one you're looking at probably only a couple feet across. It's not one of the bigger ones. But this is the way they built the site. All the stone chambers have... Uh, big roof slabs weighing multiple tons on top. Um, And they have standing stones, which are the astronomical alignments. And actually some of the walls in the structures are called uh, orthostats. The site looks very much like Western European megalithic sites. Stonehenge is probably the most famous, best known around the world and one of the most visited. But there are 50,000 megalithic sites. And you can see the resemblance between our site and some of the sites in Western Europe. But these ancient people would separate the bedrock. They would start shaping it using hammer stones. The technique's called percussion flaking. It's like making a giant arrowhead, if you would. The napping technique, you know. And some of these stones actually have a serrated edge. I don't quite see it on this one because we don't have a close-up of it. Yeah, the if, edge has if, all the serration. If you click on it, it gets much bigger. Yeah, yeah. And I think I'm blowing it up right now. But some of them are really – some of them are actually – have a you know more obvious surface where they actually struck it with another stone. Okay. So the technique of shaping of these stones, including uh, a stone called the sacrificial table, uh, was just like making an arrowhead or a spear point or a stone axe. They were chipping it away and they were dressing it, in other words, shaping it, and then they would transport the stone to the site and then make a structure of some kind out of it. Uh, in Europe, they call these stones uh, in this 
particular um, uh, stage where they have separated it, they propped it up, and they're probably dressing it using a hammerstone. They call them uh, lazy stones over in Europe. Lazy stone is because it never made it to the structure that it was intended for. It was uh, kind of like abandoned. Oh. And uh, yeah, so the poor thing was is known as that today. It's like called that stone. huge 1,500-ton <laughs> monolith at Baalbek, which is still yeah. lying in the quarry. Right. That's a great example, and it's one of the bigger ones in the world. I don't think it's the biggest, but it's one of the biggest in the world. You know, that's yep. amazing too. I think the biggest one they moved at our site is inside of a chamber called the Oracle Chamber. And it's a big glacial boulder that's split in half. Part of it weighs almost 50 tons, and they actually separated it and built a chamber over it. But most of these weigh several tons. The granite weighs about 163 pounds per cubic foot. So you can actually just do the measuring with a measuring tape, and you can pretty much estimate the weight of it without picking them up. But uh, we have miles and miles of stone walls, and the walls don't look like the typical farmer walls in New England. And New England has the most walls of anywhere in the world. It's <laughs> enough to go from here to the moon. And I remember. Miles I remember. remember that? Yeah. They're everywhere. Everywhere. Go out yes. to the West, people don't know what a stone wall is, you know, uh, friends from out in Michigan and stuff like, what are you talking about, stone wall, you know, but they're everywhere here. Well, when uh, the farmers so the cleared all the glacial tills, they put them into the walls because it was where they could be useful. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Good way to get rid of them. And, and then at the same time, they might make a, a, a boundary, you know, with a wall and also a, a stock bench. So it could serve multiple purposes. But you're right. You wanted to get rid of the rocks. They're all over New England. And you build walls. It's a yeah. great way to do it. Robert Frost. The wall, who was Robert a, Frost, he, yeah. he, he immortalized <laughs> New England's stone walls in that very famous and, poem. Uh, and he's from Derry, New Hampshire. Well, he lived in a couple of places, of course, England and San Francisco. But he lived in Derry, New Hampshire, where he wrote a lot of them. And he taught at my high school. And my grandfather, a little over 100 years ago, actually had him for a teacher. Wow. So, um, yeah, he was big on walls. Yeah, and he was only about, I think, six miles from our site where he was living, you know, very close by. Wow. So, okay. Um, got a lot of rocks. <laughs> let, me, let me try to be a little logical and uh, metonymic about this. Your dad in 55, you say, bought the site? Well, he discovered it, you know, learned about it on WBZ, and he visited it. And he worked out an agreement over the next three years to get it ah, open so, in so it was 58, okay. Yeah. Which was the a first, while, yeah. Which was the first year, of course, in January that we put our first spacecraft, U.S. Spacecraft Explorer 1, into space. In NASA. Yeah. Yes, in so, NASA. So your yeah. dad's looking yeah. back, and yeah. NASA's yeah. looking forward, same year. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> So what yep. were the first things he did? In other words, uh, did he bring in any professional archaeologists to do mapping, really detailed mapping of the extent of, of how, how far this stretched away from the, the first stuff he saw? He did eventually, yeah. He did. Uh, he had a, a lot just to get the place open, you know, parking lot building, um, you know, and all the different permits and, you know, in, incorporating the business um, and getting the bank to uh, back it and everything. Uh, but eventually in 1964, he started a group called the New England Antiquities Research Association. I remember and, uh, that. Really? I, oh, yeah, wow. because I was at the museum <laughs> in Springfield. Yeah, of course. They were they were part of our, our you know, coterie of you know, cohorts in, in, the, in the museum and exposition business. They, they, yeah, and they are still going today strong 50, what, 56 years later. Um, and my dad was a president for several years. And my uncle was one of the ones that was one of the founders, too. And they have uh, members in uh, 30-something states today. And they're, what they try to do is, um, you know, do research, study, investigation, and also catalog these sites. And at during the time of Mr. Goodwin, he knew of about, and it's, he wrote four books. And one of his books really talks about the site, came out in 1946. It was called The Ruins of Great, Great, Great Ireland in New England. The Ruins of Great Ireland in New England. And he lists, I think it's 13 sites besides ours located all over the Northeast. Today, that number is over 800 from Quebec all the way down to the mid-Atlantic states. There are sites that look so similar to the type of structures we have, but they number, you know, from, it went from about uh, – 14, I guess, including our site, up to about 800. And Nir has been uh, responsible for most of that research in investigation and cataloging these, these sites. And we are finding similar structures all the way out to Colorado, Alabama, and Indiana also. Very similar stonework. So we used to think it was kind of a Northeast phenomenon, but I think whoever these people, and we don't know who they are yet, they were scattered across the country, perhaps, 
because some of the structures look very, very similar, perhaps more than just coincidence, you know. So that's when my dad started in 64. The group that was there before that was called the Early Sites Foundation. And um, there were a couple members from Dartmouth College, professors that were founding members of that. And there were several, um, I think, eight directors. And one of the claims to fame for them is they were involved with the Lonzo Meadow 1960 Viking settlement discovery. One of the sons, oh. one of the members, found the stone whirl for, for, you know, whirl spinning, you know. And I don't see him get much credit, you know, but it was really Sites Foundation's member's son that actually found that stone back, I guess it was 1960. Well, the group actually folded in 1964, and that's where my dad you know, decided there's a void here. We need something for research. And so that's when NERA, the nonprofit group started. And they have a really nice website, NERA. Uh, the acronym is NERA, you know, and then .org, you know. And, okay, for uh, people, I mean, pro- we have this feature on the show called Radio with Pictures. So if you want to mm-hmm. kind of, you're in front of a computer, I presume, if you want to look at your own images and kind of narrate through where it's appropriate, because, you know, seeing is believing, folks. This really is an ancient megalithic monument in the tradition of things that have been found all over Europe. But doesn't that introduce this tremendous controversy, Dennis, that for a long time there were fights between antiquarians? Well, did Indians do it? And then did in, you know, Europeans do it? And then that raises the, the specter of you're, you're being racist if you don't think Indians could have done it, that kind of thing. In other words, that whole controversy – I believe is still kind of simmering in some quarters. Uh, it is. Yeah. It has been going on for uh, a long time. Um, my dad had that, you know, when he got involved with the site and everything. Uh, and it goes back to actually like John Wesley Powell, you know, um, uh, he was a head of the Smithsonian and he had what they call the Powell doctrine in the late 1800s. If you found any old world pre-Columbian artifacts, um, you're supposed to basically ignore or disavow them, you know, and this, you know, that goes back, uh, you know, over 100 years because um, they wanted to make the Americas kind of pure. And it was a thing called independent evolutionary development. And they wanted the Americas pure from the time that the Native Americans first came over. And now that date's going way back. It's way. Like 6,000 and yep. 13,000 now going way back beyond that. Until the time of Columbus, nobody came. It was all pure. And so the Native Americans were totally isolated. And I don't know how it's going to and you know, how we're going to find out, you know, in 100 years or 50 years from now what the verdict will be on that. But it looks like other people were coming to the Americas, you know, before Columbus and before the Vikings, you know, across the Pacific. And they're using DNA and they're looking at structures. They're looking at, you know, artifacts, inscriptions. And it looks like people were crossing the Atlantic Ocean also before the Vikings. But it's not conclusive yet. But, yeah, you're right. Some people – I've heard some people say that if you think anybody was here – building these structures and you don't think it's native American and you're racist. We don't know. Maybe the native Americans had a big hand in these structures, but when you get inscriptions and you have place names that are old world words that are found in the, um, the names of like mountains, rivers, and valleys like Amiskeg, Mount Monadnock, uh, uh, Kortikichi Gorge up in Vermont, Lake Memphis, they're both not only Native American with a meaning, but the same word and meaning is found over in, in Europe. It's Gaelic, I guess, or Celtic, mm-hmm. you know, and Dr. Mm-hmm. Barry fell from Harvard University, found a lot of these things. But, yeah, we still are encountering that. Uh, there's supposed to be no explorers before Columbus, basically. The acronym was NEPCO. And um, that was coined by Samuel, Samuel Elliott Morrison, the great naval historian from Harvard University. Um, and he died in 1976, 16 years after the uh, – after they discovered Lonzo Meadow and, but he still said, yep, you know, nobody of any significance came here before Columbus. So basically no explorers before Columbus, even though he knew that the Vikings had made it to North America. That is so absurd. I mean, it almost seems like a conspiracy because Powell, Powell was a Mason and Masons have a tremendous amount of information that they've been very grudging to uh, reveal, you know, up until relatively recently. And when you mm-hmm. look at place names out in the West and you look at the things that he, you know, basically uh, confiscated mm-hmm. and submerged in the Smithsonian, literally locked away. So we're never supposed to know that, uh, um, you know, any of this took place. It really makes you wonder about his motivations, that there was deeper levels to trying to make believe that all of this was uh, done by locals. Right. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And his right-hand man, I think, was Cyrus Tom, uh, Thomas at the time. And he said that he had found so many old-world pre-Columbian artifacts uh, that he didn't have time to catalog them all or record them all, sort of like spilling the beans, you know. Uh, and I, I've read the paragraph, you know, in, in the book that it, it's really interesting. It's like, wow, it was supposed to be kept quiet, you know. So there's so many what we call out-of-place archaeological artifacts or upas that have been found all over North, Central, and South America that really shouldn't be there, that may be old world from you know, Africa, the Mediterranean, Europe, and then on the other side across you know, the Pacific too. And um, there's thousands of inscriptions. You know, The ones that have been found at our site, uh, according to Dr. Barry Fell from Harvard University, now he died in 1994. He first visited the site in 1975. He wrote three books. And the first one was 1976, a bicentennial anniversary for the for the United States and it was America BC and it became a real popular book very famous a lot book. of eyebrows oh my god yeah. are, you, are you kidding yeah. that's the least it did <laughs> <laughs> it lopped yeah. off it lopped <laughs> off heads you know of the yeah establishment. yeah and it still goes on today with that book too you know uh, there's a lot of people there you know still talk about that both positive and negative about that book and he wrote a couple more books but he found um, – he didn't find the stones. He actually looked at the stones. Some of them were found in 1964 in one of our structures. Uh, he looked at it 11 years after we found it, and he said it was Iber Iberian Punic. So it was from Spain and Portugal, and it was Phoenician and because of the style of writing. And it, the, the uh, translation was that the structure was actually a sun transit uh, temple for the sun god Baal, and it was dedicated on behalf of the Canaanites. And the Canaanites, you know, the Phoenicians were the Canaanites. Um, and then he found uh, that some of the other markings were Celtic Ogham, but also from Spain and Portugal, so Celt Iberic, and Libyan. And we know the Libyans are from northern Africa, not too far from Carthage, which is one of the Phoenician cities, but they were in Spain too. So he said Spain and Portugal were dropping. Uh, uh, actually, a, a stepping off point to the New World, like when Columbus le left from there, you know, he headed south to a couple of, you know, I think, he Canary Islands, I think. I have to yeah, back yeah. up that. But, yeah, so the Phoenicians did something similar much, much earlier in time, and they used Spain and Portugal as a stepping off point to well, the New World. Most people don't realize that the planet Earth really has these incredible oceanic <laughs> superhighways called gyres. Yeah which are huge currents that rotate in one direction. I think it's counterclockwise in the Northern Hemisphere and clockwise in the Southern Hemisphere. I think I'm right on that. Anyway, mm. if, if, you, if you get a boat, a sailing ship, into one of into the gyre, the currents will literally sweep you across the South Atlantic and up until you intersect the, uh, the Gulf Stream and then all the way up along the East Coast and there's also evidence that, that explorers came the other direction, that they island hopped, you know, Greenland, Denmark, that kind of thing, down across Newfoundland and then down across, along the East Coast. But there's ample evidence now that long before Columbus, this continent was visited. And I'm, I'm fascinated that you really now have data that says that the America Stonehenge is one of these really ancient edifices. Right, exactly, and those currents are like conveyor belts, you know, exactly. bringing people across. Exactly. Yeah, yep. both ways. So, and the Phoenicians were excellent navigators. You would sail out of sight of land, where some people were huggers, but that's kind of dangerous, you know, with storms along the coast. And they used um, uh, celestial navigation at night. They weren't afraid to sail at night either. So, and some of their ships could hold a couple, I think, two hundred men, a couple hundred tons. And Columbus had like three ships with seventy-five men on three ships. The Phoenicians could hold hundreds and hundreds of men on, you know, on just one ship, or you know, men and ladies probably. But in any event, they, you know, they were they were great navigators, and they sailed all of the Mediterranean, the Black Sea, and they actually went around the Africa continent uh, for the Phoenician pharaoh Necho back about 600 BC. Actually, contracted with the Phoenicians to make that complete three-year voyage. You know, so they were great sailors. Dennis, uh, unfortunately, I did what I normally shouldn't do, which is <laughs> went really past the break. I mean, that's terrible. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, as we used to say, you can make it up in post. My guest this morning is Dennis Stone. We're discussing America's Stonehenge. And the date, we're going to get into actual specific radiocarbon dates when we come back. As I said, you are on the other side of midnight. 
My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>